Thanks, Erica. Well, good morning, everyone. Uh, my name's Marshall, uh, if I haven't met you, and it's uh, uh, a great joy to be able to share with you um, this morning. Uh, let's pray as we come to God's Word. Um, Father God, we thank you for your word uh, through the lips of Moses in Deuteronomy. Uh, we pray today that as we think about listening to you, remembering what you have done, and not making you into an idol, into an image of our own making, that you would speak to our hearts and convict us and encourage us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. When Julie and I first went to Taiwan, uh, one of the first things that we did was we went to the local temple to learn about how the locals worshipped. And we found a very enthusiastic man to give us a tour. He was very proud and excited to show us um, the new god, the new idol that they were building in the temple. Here's a, here's a picture of it. As you can see, it was a god who had a human appearance and he went, to a great de went into a great deal of detail to describe to us how it was made of a, a layer of plaster, uh, first, first of all, then several layers of plaster and then a layer of metal over the top and then finally a layer, the yellow stuff there is actually gold um, that was put on over the top. Uh, it was very expensive. It was, took a long time to make and it cost thousands of dollars and was paid for by donations of the worshippers of that temple, of that community. What really impacted Julie and I was how futile it all was. Here was a God designed by humans, shaped and crafted by people, and then when it was finished, those same pe people turned around, bowed down, prayed to it and worshipped it. This God of metal and plaster. Now this may seem ridiculous to us, but for many of us, that's the tradition of our families. And we might, some of us might still have parents or families, relatives, who still worship idols. And for the Israelites in Deuteronomy, it was a very real temptation because their God, the Lord, who took them out of Egypt, is dangerous and demanding. He is a consuming fire who demands their total allegiance. But an idol, on the other hand, is safe. An idol can be controlled and manipulated. It can be put in its place. We saw last week that God's people had a pathetic track record of being able to live up to the demands of that God and to be faithful to him. They failed miserably. As we come to Deuteronomy 4, we find ourselves asking the question, how on earth are these people going to be able to live with a holy God who demands so much? And it's a question which isn't just a piece of ancient history because we are no different to the Israelites. We are also just as prone to making God in our own image and worshipping a God of our convenience rather than the living God 
who demands our whole life. Last week we saw with, with Pastor Pete the first three chapters of Deuteronomy. From those chapters we heard the sad, depressing story of God bringing the people, the Israelites, to the land that he promised them. But then just as they were on the cusp of going into that land, they shipwrecked all of God's good plans for them. They refused to trust God. They refused to trust that he could overcome the people already in the land so that they could go in and take it over. In the last section of chapter 3, Moses reminds the people that because of you, God wouldn't let him go into the land. Now, it wasn't actually the people who were standing in front of Moses there and then who refused to go into the land. It was their parents, their fathers, their mothers in that generation who rebelled against God. But Moses is making a deliberate point here. He's telling the people right there listening to him that you are just the same as your parents. You are rebellious, sinful people who left to your own devices would have done exactly the same thing and would never trust God and what he tells them to do. And that brings us to the question that chapter 4 answers. How can God's people ever succeed into going into the land and living with God as his people. Their track record was abysmal. How on earth could they expect to get it right this time? And Moses' answer is that the way to live in the land with a holy God is to do three things, and there are three points today. Number one, to listen to the God who speaks. Number two, to not forget but to remember the God who spoke, chose you in the covenant. And because of that covenant, that covenant, number three, don't turn away from the living God and don't worship a God of your own making. Don't worship an idol. Chapter four moves from Moses' recent history lesson of the failings of the Israelites' parents in coming to the land to landing well and truly in the present. And he starts off in verses 1 to 8 by telling the people that to avoid the mistakes of the past generation, they are to listen to the God who speaks. Have a look at verse 1 with me. Now Israel, hear the decrees and laws I'm about to teach you. Follow them so that you may live and may go in and take possession of the land the Lord, the God of your ancestors, is giving you. Notice that it's by following, listening and doing God's laws by obedience that two things will happen. Firstly, they'll find life. Having life is wrapped up with living with God as his people and enjoying his blessings, thriving as his children. Secondly, verse 1 says that when they follow God's laws, they'll inherit the land. Notice the end of verse 1, the land that the Lord, the God of your fathers, is giving you. Whenever we come across that term in the Old Testament, the Lord, it's a very specific term that represents us, the special relationship that God had with his people Israel. It's the name that God used when he spoke to Moses out of the burning bush, which was the beginning of the story of the Israelites being rescued from Egypt. It's the name God uses 
when he makes a covenant with Moses at Mount Sinai, when he gives them the law, when he establishes that relationship as, as their God and with him, with, sorry, with him as their God and with them as his people. And whenever God refers to himself as the Lord, he's reminding his people that he is their God and they are his people. They are his special possession. Now, why am I telling you, telling you all this? Well, here's the point. Moses here is making a very clear connection between the covenant, the promises that God makes with his people at Mount Sinai and God giving them the land. You see, the land was a lasting reminder of God's presence with his people. It was a sign of his blessing, his ongoing relationship with them and his blessing to them. So in verse 1, we're told that if the people will follow God's laws, that special possession of the land will become theirs and remain theirs. It will cement the relationship between Israel and her God. Israel were to follow the laws that God gave them when he spoke to them. Jump down to verse 10 with me. Remember the day you stood before the Lord your God at Horeb when he said to me, Assemble the people before me to hear my words so that they may learn to revere me as long as they live in the land and may teach them to their children. Horeb um, is another name for Sinai, Mount Sinai, and it's where God made the covenant, made the promise to be, their God, to be the Israelites' God and for them to be his people. Assemble the people to hear my words, he says, so that they may learn to revere me. The Lord is a God of words. He speaks and his words are words of life. By following his words, his people find life. They can live in his presence in the land. The living God speaks and human beings can know him by hearing his voice and by following it. The thing that separated Israel from the surrounding nations was that Israel worships a God who speaks. The nations worshipped idols who were mute, idols of stone and wood that were silent. Moses tells the Israelites that if they followed the Lord's words, the wisdom of those words would be clear to everyone around them. Have a look at verses 6 to 7. Observe them carefully, for this will show your wisdom and understanding to the nations who will hear about all these decrees and say, surely this great nation is a wise and understanding people. What other nation is so great as to have their gods near them the way that the Lord our God is near us? whenever we pray to him. As the nations saw how wise and understanding Israel was, it was meant to show their difference to the other nations and to point to their special relationship with the Lord, the God who speaks, the true and living God. But for Israel to keep following the laws of the Lord, to keep being faithful, they also needed to do something else. They must not forget what God has done for them in the past. But they must remember the God who chose you. 
That's the focus of our second section, verses 9 to 14. Have a look with me at verses from verse 9. Only be careful and watch yourselves closely so that you do not forget the things your eyes have seen or let them fade from your heart as long as you live. Teach them to your children and to their children after them. Remember the day that you stood before the Lord your God at Horeb. Do not forget what you've seen. And what's the result to be? So that the things, those things go into your heart. You cherish them. You hold them close to you. Teach your children so that they will know the Lord as well and their children after them. And then, as we saw earlier, verse two, verse 10, sorry, remember the day that the Lord, that you stood before the Lord at Horeb, Mount Sinai. Who does Moses say stood before the Lord? He says, you. But as we've just seen, these people actually weren't there. It was their parents' generation who were there. But he's making the point that the covenant wasn't just for their parents. It was for you. It was for them and every generation after them. God was choosing you to be their people, to be his people. The Lord was choosing you to be their God. It's you who are going to inherit the land. So remember, don't forget. Remember that God chose you even though you didn't deserve it. Remember that he's giving you this land. Remember his kindness in being your God. Remember to follow him all your days. He keeps hammering on about this message of remembering because they were so bad at it. That was the point of the history lesson back in chapters 1 to 3. As soon as their parents escaped Pharaoh and got out of Egypt and, and breathed a sigh of relief, they forgot. They forgot what God had done for them. And Moses is telling the people that they are no different to, their, to the previous generation. It doesn't mean they literally forgot God or who he was. What Moses means is that they didn't take what God did for them to heart. They refused to trust him. And aren't we just like that as well? Even though I know in my head that God loves me and that Jesus died for me, at the first sniff of suffering, I'm inclined to question God. Does he really love me? If he loved me, surely he wouldn't let my son get sick. Well, what's gone wrong? Is God angry with me? Is there some kind of terrible sin I've committed? Perhaps you've had an experience like that. It's so easy, isn't it, to lose focus on what we know to be true of God. Remember. Remember how God has shown his love to you. For us, it's not in the covenant at Mount Sinai, but so much more gloriously in the cross of Jesus and what he did for us by dying for us. He died for you while you were still his enemy. God showed his love for you by sending the one and only, his one and only son to die for your sins and mine. Remember and don't forget by letting that truth sink into your heart 
hold on to it, cling to it. So Moses tells the Israelites to listen and follow God, follow his commands, remember what he has done. Remember that he has set you apart and out of all the peoples on earth, he's made a covenant with you. And so because of that, you are to be faithful and worship him as the Lord, not to worship a God of their own making, an idol. And that's our third point in verses 15 to 31. Look at verse 15 with me. You saw no form of any kind the day the Lord spoke to you at Horeb out of the fire. Therefore, watch yourselves very carefully so that you do not become corrupt and make for yourselves an idol, an image of any shape, whether formed like a man or a woman or like any animal on earth or any bird that flies in the air or like any creature that moves along the ground or any fish in the waters below. An idol, as it says there in verse 16, is an image of something that God created. Either a human being, like in the case in the temple uh, that we saw earlier, or an animal of some kind. To do that is to turn things on their head. It's to worship the creation rather than the creator. It's what the Israelites did at Mount Sinai. When Moses was on the mountain, remember, for, for 40 days speaking with God, the Israelites got sick of waiting for him and so they made a golden calf that they could worship. And it's also what the nations around Israel did. Their gods were images made of wood or bronze or gold, but Israel was to be different from that. They were different because her God was different. Her God was the Lord. He was not to be re represented by a creature like Dagon, the Philistine god, who was half fish and half man, or Baal, the Canaanite god, who was, who was made in the image of a bull. The gods of the nations were idols that had to be carved and shaped, manipulated and put in their place. But how is the Lord described? Look at verse 15. You saw no form of any kind the day the Lord spoke to you at Horeb, out of the fire. And then in verse 24. For the Lord your God is a consuming fire, a jealous God. The Lord is not like the gods of the nations. He can't be shaped into an image that we want him to be. He can't be, he can't be controlled he is a fire, a consuming fire. We saw in the recent bushfires in, in the state's north around Rapville how dangerous a fire can be. You probably saw in the news that over 40, 40 properties were destroyed in that fire. When it was at its worst, when, when the elements were, were against the firefighters, there was, there was nothing they could do. There was no way they could control that fire or put it out. They just had to change, wait for the wind to change and for conditions to improve. The Lord is a consuming fire who cannot be contained. There are three characteristics about the Lord that this passage brings out. Three things that set him apart from the idols. Three reasons why the Israelites were to give their undivided loyalty to him. Number one, the Lord 
is a God who speaks. Number two, the Lord is a God who relates. And number three, the Lord is a God who demands. So number one, the Lord is a God who speaks. He makes himself known through words, as we said before. He showed himself to Moses. He made a covenant with his people. He communicated them to them through the commandments and showed them how to live, all through words. He is the living God who spoke out of the fire. And the words he speaks are powerful words. By his words, he brought the stars into being and set the sun in place. By his words, he brought the plagues that were a judgment on Pharaoh and the people of Egypt. By his word, he parted the sea and delivered his people through it and judged the Egyptian army. That's the God you are to worship, says Moses. But the idols, they cannot speak. They are mute. They cannot make themselves known. They cannot communicate their desires to the people. They have no power to save. How foolish it would be to turn away from the living God into a piece of wood and worship it. But the Lord, he is a God who saves. And that's our second point, which leads us to our second point. He is a God who relates. He created human beings so that they could have a relationship with him. He is a God who loves. Who chooses a people who aren't worthy of love, but he loves them anyway. He makes a covenant with them and binds them to himself. He made the Israelites his own. He saved them and delivered them from slavery. He loves his people and he expects love and loyalty and total allegiance in return. Which is why Moses warns against idolatry. It's breaking faith with our creator. It's treason. Be very careful to stay faithful to the God who saved you, says Moses, and not might make idols. Because again, look at verse 24. For the Lord your God is a consuming fire, a jealous God. An idol is powerless to act and impotent, but the Lord is as dangerous as a raging fire. Don't mess with him. The word translated jealous is perhaps better translated as impassioned or passionate meaning he loves intensely and expects loyalty and obedience from his people. And so, number three, he is a God who demands. He demands absolute loyalty. And if the Israelites do break faith, if they do abandon their God and turn to false gods, Moses paints a very bleak picture of what will happen to them in the future. Have a look with me from verse 25. After you've had children and grandchildren and have lived in the land a long time, if you then become corrupt and make any kind of idol doing evil in the eyes of the Lord your God and arousing his anger, uh, flip down to verse 27, the Lord will scatter you among the people and only a few of you will survive among the nations to which the Lord will drive you. 
There you will worship man-made gods of wood and stone which cannot see or hear. And we've lost the last bit, which is, which cannot see or hear or eat or smell. Moses is predicting what does in fact happen to Israel. In future generations, Israel does become unfaithful and so will be driven out of the land to lose that inheritance and will go into exile. And notice what will happen in verse 28. They will worship gods of wood and stone which cannot see or hear or smell or eat. God will hand them over to idolatry as judgment because that is a pitiful state to be in, away from relationship with a living God, far from his love and blessing. The Lord is a demanding God, demanding loyalty and judging his people when they reject him. But then Moses finishes off on a note of hope. Look at verse 29. But if from there, from exile, you seek the Lord your God, you will find him if you seek him with all your heart and with all your soul. When you are in distress and all these things have happened to you, then in later days you will return to the Lord your God and obey him. For the Lord your God is a merciful God. He will not abandon you or destroy you or forget the covenant with your ancestors, which he confirmed to them by oath. Because the Lord is a gracious God, he keeps his promises. He will not forget his covenant. But still the question is left hanging. How are these people going to respond? Are they going to fulfil their part of the bargain? Or will Moses' warnings of exile be the final word? It leaves a dark cloud hanging over Deuteronomy chapter 4. And they are left wondering and we are left wondering... How can this people ever live with such a holy God, with this consuming fire who demands absolute loyalty? And we find that ourselves asking that same question, not of Israel, but of us. How can we live with a God who demands so much of us? Because if we're honest with ourselves, we recognise that we are just as prone to wander as the Israelites were. We are just as prone to worship an idol as they were. Now at this point you may be thinking, wait a minute Marshall, surely you're not saying that we're in danger of going, going home from church and, and going, going to the local temple, well there are some temples in Sydney, going there and worshipping a god like we saw earlier, bowing down before it. To which I will answer, no, I don't think we're in danger of that. But idolatry is make, about making God into our own image. An image that we create. Manipulating it. Shaping it into something we want. And I think we do that all the time. When I'm confronted with a living God who demands relationship with him entirely on his terms. How do I respond? Too often, I try to manipulate God to my terms. Too often, I try to water down those demands, make them more manageable, and I strongly suspect that you do as well. 
and that is idolatry. We may not worship a stone god or an image in a temple, but when we manipulate God into something that we want to worship, it's the same thing. It's idolatry. Making God into an image that we can control. The Lord, the God of Deuteronomy, is a consuming fire. A God who refuses to be confined to a form or a place. The idols that the nations worshipped in the Old Testament were a human creation that were put in its place. Wherever human hands chose to put them. And don't we do that all the time? Don't we try to put God in his place? Don't we try to compartmentalise God? Say to him, Lord, come and take control of my life, but only up to this point. My, my sexuality or my, my studies or my family, those things are my life. Don't, don't come into that part of my life. You can have the rest, but just don't come past that point. Don't we subtly make God into an image that we create ourselves when we ask him to bless our ambitions for a successful career or a happy and healthy family and expect him to tag along with our plans? But when we read the difficult, demanding things in the Bible like take up your cross and deny yourself, we never really allow that voice to get a hearing inside our heads and challenge our comfortable middle-class lifestyle. Now, I know that these words might come across as pretty strong, but I want to make it clear that I'm speaking to myself, first of all, because I know how easily these things come to me, trying to squeeze God into my own image, trying to manipulate him, compartmentalise him, mould him into a God of convenience. But, as I said, I suspect I'm not alone because I suspect that you have the same problem. And so we might find ourselves asking the same question we asked about the Israelites. How can we ever hope to live with a holy God who demands everything? A God who is a consuming fire a God who demands absolute obedience and loyalty? Well, the answer is found at the beginning of John's Gospel in the New Testament. In John chapter 1, verse 14, we're told that the Word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. Remember in Deuteronomy 4 that God is a God who speaks who spoke out of the fire. In John's Gospel, we encounter that same word of God again. But this time, the word takes on human flesh. He becomes a man like us. But unlike us, Jesus listened to his Father and was loyal to him, even to the point of dying on the cross. He obeyed his father perfectly. 
He refused to worship other gods. He refused to manipulate his father, but was perfectly obedient to his will, even when that will led to him going to the cross and dying. Jesus succeeded where the Israelites failed. And he succeeded where we failed. He perfectly obeyed the Father. He is our champion. He is our perfect representative. And finally, he died to carry our failure to obey the Father on his back. He died to take our sins, our rebellion on himself. He died for your sin and mine. He died to fulfil God's promise to the Israelites in the covenant with Moses. He died so that Israel could live with God and so that you and I can be his people and live with him, not in the land of Israel, not in a physical land, but in something much better to live with him forever in the new creation, in a perfect world. Amen.